when Hurricane um, Harvey hit Texas, about 70 people died in that 10 or 12 day period. That's about how many people die in a week in Ohio from overdoses. Welcome to the 457 SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about our southeastern Ohio communities. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Susan Tebbin. I'm Atish Baidya. And I'm Aaron Payne. In this episode, a stable of the addiction treatment and recovery community in our area is going fishing. Dr. Joe Gay is now the former executive director of Health Recovery Services after nearly two decades in the position. We'll learn more about him as we discuss the opioid crisis and how he challenges others to rethink the way we talk about addiction. Then, in the latest installment of The Amazing Adventures of Chris Riddle, we'll learn more about him through his tattoos, including the one we can hardly believe is real. All that and more in episode 18 of 457SEO. I'm Dr. Joe Gay. I'm a clinical psychologist by training, and I recently retired from Health Recovery Services, which is a behavioral health agency that's uh, based here in Athens and provides services in six counties in Southeast Ohio. For about the last nine years, I've been very interested in the issue of opiates in our area. That's when we first noticed a, a large increase in heroin use. And so since that time, I've been following what is now quite obviously an epidemic and opiate use. Uh, Sort of the question we present to our guests to start is what does Southeast Ohio need and how do we get it? So I'm going to phrase it to you as from your standpoint, what does this area need as far as tools to combat the opioid epidemic and how do we get those tools? We need um, availability of treatment, which was really increased by Medicaid expansion. So I would say the thing I view most critical now is maintaining expansion of Medicaid and full coverage through Medicaid for addiction services. We do face a shortage in workforce for people to treat this. There are, of course, needs for prevention services also. And um, I'm particularly concerned statewide and nationwide about the issue of prescribing practices and the degree to which the overprescribing of opioids has contributed. You talk about prescribing. It seems since the opioid epidemic has become more mainstream and it's affecting more and more people, doctors have been trained more to monitor their own prescribing practices and some data will show that uh, prescription numbers are going down. Do you, do you think they're going down far enough or do you think there needs to be more education or what further must physicians well, do? Since about 1997-98, the rate of prescriptions has increased 500% mm. in, Ohio, in Ohio and it's been decreased 20%. So it's now <laughs> 400% higher than it was 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, I'm sorry. As somebody who's watched this, why 
can you provide some sort of insight into why those prescription numbers went as high as they did? I think a part of it was intensive marketing by the pharmaceutical companies. Opiates are an extremely effective way to treat pain. People have grown to expect them. People are offended when their doctors don't prescribe them. And so there was immense pressure on physicians to prescribe them. In some settings, doctors were even one of the metrics for judging their effectiveness was whether or not they effectively treated pain. You know, the patient satisfaction surveys that said, was your pain addressed adequately? And so the best way to do that was to give them a pill. (laughs) And so there was a a lot of pressure to do that and very poor recognition of the dangers of it. So to that end, do you think that's part of the reason we're having such trouble controlling this is people are making money off of this and people want to continue making money off of this? Uh, the the pharmaceutical companies, obviously. Do you think that's part of it? Do you think it's sort of a political side of things? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and how, um, how much in Southeast Ohio do you think that's a big issue? The um, counties in the state with the highest prescribing rates were the S- Southeast Ohio counties where this epidemic really began. Wow. Hmm. Uh, we were kind of in the second tier of counties. We actually don't, in Athens County and the counties closest to us, we don't have the biggest problem and haven't had the biggest problem. The biggest problem was a little bit further southwest of us. And our local medical institutions have been reasonably responsible about this and have tried since 2009, 2010, when they first became aware of the problem, to try to address it. The the health systems I've dealt with locally have been doing what they can Mm -hmm. to contain it. I think that's one reason we have a lower death rate than some counties to the southwest of us. Now, walking back sort of to uh, the opioid epidemic 101, for people that may not know, what does it mean to be dependent on opioids? What, What happens to the body when you have a substance use disorder? Well, there are actually two issues. One is the issue of physical dependency. And when a person becomes physically dependent on a drug, one thing that happens is they need increasing amounts to get the same effect. And another thing that happens is that if they take, quit taking the drug, they experience withdrawal symptoms. Now, that can happen to people who are not addicted, to people who simply are given a medication and take it for a couple of weeks and their body starts adapting to it, and they're actually physically dependent on it, and they'll get sick when they quit taking it. A person that different, and that is often a component of addiction to a number of substances, but the thing that defines addiction is that the person uses the substance in a way that is harmful to them or others they use increasing amounts, neglect their responsibilities because of it, engage in illegal activity to obtain the drug, and their their relationships suffer because of their use of the drug. So it's a combination 
of physical dependency and these other behavioral manifestations that cause dysfunction in their life. If someone is taking the substance, it's kind of like the term, I guess we used to say, functioning alcoholic. Yeah. But they are still handling their business and paying their bills, but they take that extra something. Yeah. That's not necessarily considered, is that not addiction or that's not a problem? Well, it's there are degrees of this, as with everything else. Sure. And so, generally, you would look for there to be some dysfunction to call it an addiction. Okay. Now, in the case of alcoholics, you could have a person conceivably who was highly functional but was killing their liver. Sure. Right, and there's the dysfunction, right, yeah, the physical dysfunction. the dysfunction gotcha. is that right. they're going to die th- at the age of 50 or 55 instead of right. 80 or 85. Right, and I think with people that won't see someone falling in the street or in the middle of a nod or something, yeah. they don't consider that or maybe don't consider that a, a problem. Yeah. Like, well, no, that's, that's yeah. still it. You need that to function, which yeah. kind of therein lies the yeah. dysfunction. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, and and – Usually when a person is using an alcoholic, using it at a level that's enough to damage their liver, they're probably dysfunctional in other ways, even though they may be subtle. Sure. Okay. Um, I saw, this was a long time ago, but I, I had saw one study where one of the first symptoms seemed to be in the people who seemed to have the mildest alcohol use disorder. One of the things that characterized them is their kids were less successful. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they, the metrics the study was using didn't pick up necessarily dysfunction in the alcoholic's behavior, but fewer of their kids went to college. Oh, in the home. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And so there'll be, there can be subtle. Okay. And how has addiction, the idea of addiction changed or the, the, the description, uh, the definition of addiction changed? I mean, you kind of hit on some of it where it's if you have it and there's some level of dysfunction um, and it's what you do. Is it not not just biological once upon a time? That was it's a disease and look at it as a disease. Go ahead. Well, no, go ahead. In in the sometime probably in the late 40s, there was a big emphasis on addiction as a disease and addiction as a disease instead of a moral problem. Correct. Which was a step in the right direction. And I think, unfortunately, there got to be somewhat too much focus on the disease or the medical aspect of it. So, for example, it was a while before cocaine was represented was recognized as addictive because there weren't a lot initially as the cocaine and crack epidemic began there weren't a lot of they couldn't identify a lot of physiological dysfunction related to use and so I can remember reading in magazines um, like Time magazine or you know that oh well cocaine is the recreational drug of the 
right. middle class, and it's not right. really it's the club addictive. drug and one of those things. You yeah, have a good yeah, time yeah. or the Wall yeah. Street. Now I knew fr- I had friends who were addicted to cocaine, so I knew better. But it was the glamorous. It was a glamorous. Yeah, drug, right? yeah, Just, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, so there was a time when there was more focus on that. I think the perceptions have broadened, but still, there's still a residual of the judgmentalness stigma. Sure. And then on certain levels of drugs, and cocaine was one thing, but crack, okay, then that was that was real bad because it was the lower form of cocaine, <laughs> yeah. right? So you were a lower form of yeah. life yeah. if you were on crack as opposed to yeah. uh, cocaine and I would uh, imagine, I think there's levels I've been told or read about within the uh, opioids for the pills as opposed to the heroin. Yeah. And then you look at meth addicts differently. And it's like, whoa, we've even done a hierarchy in the yeah. Oh, yeah. There is, a, there, there is a hierarchy. And Wow. Yeah. And you're correct. Crack was looked down on. It's yeah. very interesting because it shares, even though in some ways in physiological effects, it's very different than opiates. Sure. Cocaine and cracker uppers, opiates a downer. Right. The thing about crack is it was to begin with in a person's career of use, relatively inexpensive, and it provided a very quick, intense high. Mm-hmm. Which was the thing that got yeah, people when, you, when, when I a person starts using heroin, it's cheaper than pills. Right. Right. I've heard of that when people start with crack, and they're like that first high is the thing and you chase that you, you yeah. never get it back chase the ghost you chase the ghost and you never get that first one but you keep yeah. trying yeah and so and I look at um I remember kind of growing up in when in the crack era and the in the treatment of um of crack addicts as as criminals you know, so yeah. you can be addicted, but you're automatically a criminal. And so yeah. we put you in jail instead of getting you help. Um, and we could talk about socioeconomic and all that. And so they see that coming around. And then now the idea of jailing the um, addict during this wave of, of drug, um, ep- this, this drug epidemic, um, I don't know if that's a matter of learning from what happened before. Um, it's still poor people getting the the lower end of this of the stick, you know. Um, but what have you seen in terms of the if the, if crack and was the last big epidemic, and now we're here with opioids and the treatment has how how that has grown even. I think that there's not more, much more emphasis on treatment now than there was with crack. Actually, the last big epidemic was methamphetamines. Okay, right. Out west. Okay, okay. All right. That was an interesting phenomena. Okay. Got it. That epidemic got us about as far east as the Mississippi River. Interesting. But uh, but anyway, but before that, Mm -hmm. crack was a major epidemic. Okay. And I think that socioeconomic status played a part in it. I think race played a part in it. Right. Mm -hmm. In the fact. The The crack was criminalized Mm -hmm. much more than opiates have been. Yeah, yeah. The numbers bear that out. Yeah. (laughs) And so now, seeing now where, and even some will say with the opioid epidemic that it didn't hit epidemic status until, and to hate to be crass, until some powerful people started dying or some, you know, 
that um, reach a certain level in the hierarchy. Yeah. <coughs> it, yeah, it bled into the oh, yeah. sort of affecting certain people at a certain right. level. Again, the so- socioeconomic, you know, when it was maybe southeast, southwest Ohio, or in the Appalachia maybe. Yeah, in Appalachia, we first noticed it in a colleague from here at Ohio University and I even published a report in the professional literature about it saying, you know, there might be an opiate epidemic coming hmm. back in 2009. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it was – now, the Ohio Department of Health was paying attention to it mm-hmm. right. and doing everything they could. But it really hadn't reached the public. Right. And too many people were making money off of it. Mm. Yeah. It wasn't entirely a socioeconomic phenomenon, though, because one thing that really happened is people in southern Ohio, Sauda County specifically, the state representative from down there introduced John Kasich to families of people who had died of it. Hmm. And he was so touched by their story that he really focused on it, even though they were just regular people. But certainly much more attention has been focused since it's really gotten it worked its way into the middle class. And, mm-hmm. and it's interesting, and I wonder if you've seen this happen where people get aware of it because of different things change in their own lives. Like from my own reporting, pseudoephedrine was put behind bars because meth was very close to pseudoephedrine and yeah. people were making they were even putting baby powder behind locks because people were cutting their heroin with the baby powder. And it's interesting how people don't notice until they can't buy baby powder and stuff. Yeah. Have you noticed that sort of thing and, and the adaptation? I, that I, I, I probably don't because I'm so in, enmeshed in it, you know, that mm-hmm. but I, I'm not disagreeing with your observation, right. but it's, it's an interesting observation. Yeah. How do you balance the medical aspect of treating someone with addiction with the uh, wraparound services such as housing and mental health and all of, all of those things. How do, how do you distribute the emphasis when you're treating someone with an, an addiction? Well, I think that every case is different. So you have to individualize treatment. You always kill the snake that's closest to you. And so what is for this particular person, what is the most threatening aspect? You need to have science and you often need to have medicine to guide this because we do know that recovery rates are much higher with medication-assisted treatment, which of course requires medical care. And so for the particular individual, you have to stabilize them. You have to get them off of the substance. People are much more likely to recover if they are drug free. Mm-hmm. As long as they're using the drug, it's very hard for them to make the other changes in their life that are required. And so if you can get them into a drug free state, then you begin addressing these other issues. And you have to just, in the individual case, prioritize what the issues are. If they are living in a drug house, getting them somewhere else is very important. Mm -hmm. If they have, if they're living with a family that supports their recovery, then their housing is less of an issue 
and maybe the thing you need to focus on is helping them get a job or help them get into some kind of pro-social lifestyle. It might be going back to school, something like that. But you, it, it's individualized, but you have to deal with, often deal with the physical components of the addiction first. And one, one of the problems and one of the issues with opiates is that the, I mentioned earlier, the tolerance, the need for increased amounts. That is a hugely dramatic issue with opiates. An alcoholic, most people will get a buzz off a six-pack of beer. And the average serious alcoholic, HRS-treated, traditionally used, drank about a case of beer a day. I've seen people who drank two cases a day. Wow. But the ratio of beginning dose to end dose there is four to one to eight to one. People just very rarely, even if they're seriously alcoholic, drink more than that. Mm -hmm. Two cases a day, two-fifths a day, somewhere in that range. With opiates, the increase in tolerance can be 70 to one to 100 to one. Yikes. They need much, much more. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get it, even if they start trying to taper their own dose down, they'll start having withdrawal symptoms. The withdrawal has been compared to a really bad case of the flu, which is uncomfortable. None of us would want that. But there's also a mental component to it that is apparently just awful. And in various settings from various people I've heard, and I've had clients say it to me directly, that it's like not being able to breathe. Hmm. Wow. It's like being held underwater. Wow. And there's just their brain is telling him you've got to have this or you're going to die or you're going to be there's going to be a catastrophe you've got to help them overcome that struggle of their brain telling them you've got to have this once you've got them stabilized you then start figuring out well, what what does this person really need to stay sober this approach that we're talking about, um, this sort of model with the wraparound services, how long has that been sort of the the approach for addiction? I would say that it's been around for at least 20 years. Elements of it were present before that. Probably about 10 years ago, there started to be an increased emphasis on integrated care, integrating medical care with behavioral health care. Um, it was formalized and probably got its biggest push with the Affordable Care Act, okay. which really encouraged that. So that's been a, a change in the field, this emphasis on integrated care with regard to medical care versus behavioral health care. And looking down the line as, as the nation, uh, the idea of... Uh, universal health care or, you know, uh, the Medicaid ex expansion and the possible changes that are or are not coming. Um, and <laughs> you add that with the, um, the designation that it is an emergency. Our current president, you know, declared the emergency. Yes. And it intends and, to declare the emergency. Oh, excuse me. That was the intention. Okay. It was an intent. It's not quite declared at the time of this recording. Okay. 
Is that is what it, it is? Not. I've, I've from, read it or yeah, not? From, the, it, from a legal perspective? From a le- there is nothing in writing. They are in the process of developing a plan for a declaration. It's not official. There's, okay. He doesn't have a – Excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just a couple uh, – about a month ago, um, HHS Secretary uh, Price – said they had no intention of declaring the opioid epidemic an emergency, a national emergency because they could accomplish uh, all of the same th- similar things mm-hmm. through legislation and there would be no need for an emergency. But then um, two days, about two, two days, days later, two I days, just read about yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> two days later, uh, President Trump speaking with a pool of reporters at his golf club in New Jersey, he said he was going to declare it a national emergency. And it's been about a month at the time of this recording, and there has been no formal declaration or plan put in place, which is un- it's unorthodox to intend to declare an emergency without having a plan already in place. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Gay? And how does how does treatment move forward? How do centers move forward and grow? You established the need for a strong, uh, a larger workforce, and that idea of the Medicaid expansion being a key to treatment, and that being, I would imagine, that being shored up and being stabilized and not taken away. Taken away. Um, so, with with this, with whatever's brewing or not brewing, how do you? How does one move forward? How does well? Well, you I, just do, I guess. You just do move forward, you, but you do what you can, <laughs> right? Uh, certainly, there would be some advantages to declaring an emergency, uh, and you can make a case for it. When Hurricane um, Harvey hit Texas, about seventy people died in that ten or twelve day period. That's about how many people die in a week in Ohio from overdoses. So, um, mm-hmm. there you could, you can make a case for an emergency. There are advantages to come that come from an emergency declaration. Um, different resources. There could be. It could represent an increase in and um, saving lives and yeah, treatment. Yeah. Yeah, FEMA funds become available um, through the Stafford Act if uh, they were to select their de- emergency declaration through the Stafford Act. That would free up some FEMA funds. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it could encourage, put pressure on Congress to appropriate money. Mm-hmm. So uh, it has practical aspects. It has political aspects. Um I think it would be useful politically because it would give advocates for treatment and prevention some leverage in the political realm to say this needs to be addressed. Um, The things that are needed, it doesn't really matter how they come as long as we get them. I think it might be quicker if we got them through an emergency, but it could also have it could politicize it in negative ways also sure it's like is it a political game or a financial game because the uh, idea well i think of there's finances are a big part of it sure because opiate treatment's expensive um it, particularly with heroin it takes longer 
there are more failures along the way. Um, the need for medication increases the expense of the treatment. Um, and so it does cost more mm -hmm. to treat opiate addicts, particularly heroin addicts. So there is a financial component to it. Um, I understand. Bringing it back locally, I understand yeah. the Bassett House is no longer co-ed because it's more expensive to treat young ladies. If you treat female clients, you always have to have female staff present. And you have to staff more heavily. There are more security issues if you have both genders present because you have to worry about sexual contact to be blunt about it, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and so you, it really requires much closer supervision. And the state has made a series of changes, which they, I'm going to be frank about it, disguised as enhancements, but were actually cuts, particularly for rural areas. Wow. In, uh, including reducing the rates for residential care, and it became impractical to continue to maintain that as a co-ed facility. So where do the young ladies go? You shrugged. I hope somebody's treating them. Wow. We just, it wasn't practic practical for us to do it. It was very, very sad. Broke my heart. How, how difficult is it to make a decision like that when, you're, when your hands are tied by regulations and restrictions on one hand, but on, on the other hand, you're, you're involved. I've talked with you several times. You're involved because, because you care. Yeah. So how, how do you deal with that when, when you go home from work, when you have to make tough decisions like it, that? It's but hard. I, it's very difficult. You also have to look at the bigger picture that if you can't keep your agency solvent, you're not going to be helping anybody. That's what it comes down to with some situations like that. And that's one of the bigger problems in this area anyway is lack of female adult or do, or adolescent rehabilitation. Are you seeing any end in sight? I know we have one um, getting built, getting started. Um, what else do we have? Well, if? there are actually several. I think part of the problem there is access. There's actually been an expansion of treatment mm -hmm. since Medicaid expansion took place. So although not in Athens, within the general area, there are treatment facilities for females, treatment facilities for males, residential treatment facilities. Mm -hmm. And um, so helping people know how to access those is yeah. a challenge. We hear all the time in public forums, oh, there's no treatment, when we know there is treatment. Mm -hmm. But there are still, there, there are gaps. Um, I, I was in contact with a person who needed to get his son into a Vivitrol program and in the Dayton area and couldn't do it and his son subsequently overdosed and died. Mm -hmm. And so you have these gaps in treatment. Um, we have a, because our women's program is a very good program, we have a waiting list. So there are people who need to get in there who can't get in. There are other options, but generally you want to treat people close to home. 
So access is a problem, but sometimes the problem is in helping people navigate the system. Mm-hmm. So you retired from this uh, very important work, but I have a feeling that you didn't let the work go. No, no. I'm. This is something that's this issue of opiates is something that's consumed much of my time and attention now for about nine years and so I think I'll continue to be involved. You've you've testified to state government before. Is that something you would you you'd do again if if uh, requested? Sure. What are some of the things you testified to state government about regarding the opioid crisis? Um, Most of it has been around budget stuff Mm -hmm. and just the need to support funding for treatment. Do you think state government has has that concept in mind or do you think do you think they still need persuasion? Let's use that word. I think they still need some persuasion. I think that there is a battle between the bean counters and the People. treatment advocates. Yeah. A, cu- a couple of, there are a couple of problems there. One is that there's, um, I'm trying to think they use an expression, siloed. There's kind of a siloed view of this where every agency, every division within state government is under pressure to reduce spending. And there's a lack of understanding that you can achieve probably significant reductions in expense in one area that are going to cost you tremendously in other areas. Mm -hmm. And the idea of looking at that across systems seems to be anathema to the state. Mm -hmm. The fact, you know, the idea that if you decrease treatment spending, it might increase correction spending. That's They just won't look at that. And even within the healthcare system, there's a difficulty in grasping that if you reduce behavioral health treatment, you may increase cost in other areas of healthcare treatment. That's one problem. The other problem is, and I've had heard from a very top level administrator in the healthcare field, that they really look at things in two year segments in bienniums. You know, I asked, I said, well, do you, do you mostly look at this in terms of this two-year budget cycle? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's the way we look at it. So there's not an appreciation of the fact that what we're doing now may cost much more 10 years or 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. I particularly became aware of it with regard to hepatitis C, which is a, a hugely expensive disease and becoming much, much more common because of uh, injection drug use. And But the bill for hepatitis C usually doesn't come due for 5 or 10 or 20 years. Oh, okay. um, people are asymptomatic for years. But when it happens, it's hugely expensive mm-hmm. and deadly. So that understanding behavioral health treatment, this is true to an extent of mental health treatment too, understanding behavioral health treatment, addiction treatment as an investment 
seems to be lost on many of the people making decisions about this. That political decision, is that because they're still basing, they're coming from a moral standpoint, or that is a financial, again, they're just looking at a financial decision and thinking everybody can't come along, some people aren't going to make it, which sounds horrible, and but it's in effect what it what the policy ends up being or the lack of funding ends up saying is that some people aren't 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 going to get we're not going to bring everyone along yeah um and i don't know that's just a statement i don't know if there's a question in there but it 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 hurts when you I, i think yeah yeah i think there's that and i think that the rhetoric that government is bad and the emphasis and the political utility of cutting taxes is an issue. You know, that's an easy platform to run on. Right, right. Because, right, it doesn't no matter have people what attached the to it. Right? ultimate cost is. Exactly, exactly. Um, I don't know if it's okay, but Anna, I was going to say, if, this is not a segue, on a lighter note, but <laughs> <laughs> there's no segue here. We have to go to a break and come back. But... And yes, you, yes, while you retired from the position and you're still doing the work because that is a part of your life, what else do you now have time for that you have retired from going into an office every day? Fishing and reading. <laughs> so tell us about that. Now, what kind of what kind of fisherman are you? Now, are you lure fishing? I did that the first time this weekend, and um, I was kind of excited. I thought I had a fish. And I pulled it too quickly. I pulled the, you know, the pole of the lure, and then it lured, popped back, and hooked my shirt. So, <laughs> yeah, so a little bit of a Been fail. Done that. <laughs> <laughs> so a bit of a fail. Locally, I fish in the Ohio River. Um, I particularly enjoy fishing on the Texas coast. I'm from Texas. Okay. And so, unfortunately, the places I fish were where the hurricane came ashore. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and um, so I'm still trying to make contact with some of my fishing connections down there. Okay. I was going to ask, you had family uh, or I have friends? family in Houston, and they're all okay. 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 That's good. One person has said, well, I tried it. You can't fish every day, but I'm trying to test that out. <laughs> I, have, I have my friend in Colorado fishes every day, and he seems to be doing very well. <laughs> when I went and visited him, we fished together every day. And Is there that, a certain fish that you like? Is there a certain game you go for? Um, I In... Um, the Ohio River, I fish mostly for white bass striper hybrids. Okay. And in um, Texas, I fish what they call inshore in the bays for speckled trout and redfish, and then fish offshore for red snapper and tuna. Wow, I like wow. To fish for tuna. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a bit more, yeah. I would think, of a challenge. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. What's your uh, biggest fish story? Huh? What's your biggest fish story? What's the biggest fish you ever I caught? think the biggest probably the biggest fish i ever caught was a shark that was about 200 pounds what but (laughs) that's a fish story (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i'm not a big shark fisherman and they don't keep sharks well of that type and stuff so but the one i was yeah yeah we never even brought it in the boat oh we just cut the leader Mm -hmm. uh because you'd what endanger the fish and the people right. by trying to get a shark right, I was say, now, in the boat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the fish I'm kind of proudest of is I caught 129-pound tuna. Dang. Mm. <laughs> wow. Which, as my, 
I was telling my mother about it, and um, I said, you know, it was about this long. It was over five feet long. I said, weighed 129 pounds. She said, you know, that was taller than I am and heavier than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and so now when you fish, do you eat it? You catch it? You eat it? You clean it? All that stuff? or do you... The stuff I catch in the Gulf, I do. Okay. The stuff yeah. I catch in the Ohio River, I don't. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> um, so I, I've been leaning on you as a source for about a year, year and a half now since the first time I contacted you, yeah. I think. Something I did not know was that you were a volunteer firefighter for 50 years. Yes. How, how did you first get involved as a volunteer firefighter? When I was in elementary school, there was a fire station between the school and where I lived. Oh, okay. And I started going into the fire station and hanging out. <laughs> And I became what they called back then a station fly. <laughs> <laughs> and so I That'll just do it. was there almost every day when I was a kid. Hmm. And What really excited you about being a firefighter? Excitement. This, just the <laughs> excitement of it, just yeah. the idea. Yeah. As I got older, I liked the fact that we felt like we were helping people. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a satisfaction in that but always like the excitement of it. Were there any lessons that you learned as a firefighter that carried over into uh, your professional work or vice versa? Yeah, it's funny you ask that because I, I, even at the time I knew it, but I came just within the last year or so to appreciate it more. Uh, my, one of my first, as I got into the addiction field, I started as a consultant at Bassett House and became the clinical director of Bassett House and eventually the program director at Bassett House. And my, and I was a success at that, which helped get me in the position I'm in, was in, recently retired from. Um, but my approach to Bassett House was really based on how I saw what were called district fire chiefs in Houston, chiefs who were over a part of the city, the way they operate it, which is always be calm, never raise your voice, let your people, if your people are doing what they're supposed to do, just let them do it. Only intervene when you need to. And, but also be vigilant to problems and dangers and deal with the things the person in charge needs to deal with. Mm. And that I had had that model for, by that time, 18 years. And so that was really, without even really recognizing it, that was the approach I took to running Bassett House. Mm -hmm. And just being able to cope with emergencies in the unexpected, I think, was a big help in my professional life. I was used to making quick decisions. Also, I happened to, for many years, operate in a way. I was a volunteer in both places and could, you know, we were alerted by radio, including beepers or before beepers came along, we, as soon as we were old enough, we got radios, fire radios in our cars. And so I was used to getting to an emergency and deciding what needed to be done. Hmm. 
mm-hmm. in a minute or so. Mm-hmm. And that was a big help when I started dealing with teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of as, as the last thing I have for you is what do you think somebody that is not attuned to the opioid crisis, what do you say to someone like that to convince them that this is a problem that needs addressing by everybody? That's a good question. I guess it would depend on where they're coming from. Uh, And there are plenty of statistics that say that it's a crisis that needs to be addressed. But sometimes the personal stories, if you can acquaint them with some of the personal stories, over a period of three or four years, the Ohio Department of Health had pretty clearly defined the crisis and come up with some reasonable plans for addressing the crisis. But absolutely nothing was happening. And it wasn't until the personal element, when the families of people who have actually died were put in connection with somebody with power who happened to be John Kasich when he was running for governor, that things really started happening. He wasn't persuaded by the data. I'm not saying he ignored the data, but I don't think he was persuaded by the data. He was persuaded by the personal pain of people who had suffered loss from this. And so I think maybe that personal trying to acquaint people with individuals in pain because because of it, particularly family members, because there's more sympathy. I think a person not touched by the opiate epidemic will be more sympathetic to the pain of families than the pain of addicts. Mm -hmm. I meant to remember this. I've noticed that people who are interviewed always start their interviews, no matter what the first question is, they always start their interviews. The people who are Mm -hmm. used to doing this always say, well, thank you for letting me be here. (laughs) Thank you for letting me be here. And you can transpose that to the first (laughs) podcast if you want to. We appreciate your time. Coming up, probably my favorite nonsensical segment, The Amazing Adventures of Chris Riddle. We're going to learn so much about him. This is so weird. It's another episode of The Amazing Adventures of Chris Chris Riddle. Riddle. Wow. And it's a, <laughs> <laughs> can you feel the love of You the can't see the dry ice on the floor and the spotlights. Yeah. And, and the fan, the Beyonce <laughs> fan. <laughs> and in this amazing adventure, ask me about tattoos. Chris? Yes? You have one. I have tattoos. You have, ta- you have multiple I tattoos? I have multiple tattoos. Okay. That run the range of taste. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>
Because <laughs> tattoos mm. are an ancient art. They were therapeutic in some cultures going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years B.C. And then it just depends on where you're from, what they were for. A lot of women had them in ancient Egypt, I've been reading. Hmm. Uh, as we know, in Polynesian culture, it was men that had them as part of the warriors. Um, they were big in uh, as far as quote-unquote modern culture in the 19th century in New York City. That's kind of considered the place of modern uh, tattoo-ness or tattoo art. Native Americans had them before then, you know, so. I did not know you knew this much about tattoos. No, really? Yeah. The history of tattoos. <laughs> the history of tattoos. <laughs> they legitimately use, like, nails and ink to hammer it in, too, in some cultures, In right? some cultures, they mm-hmm. bone it's and... It's called a prison tattoo. Right, right, uh. right. They, right. Then there's prison culture. That's a whole other thing. Um, but pen. there's, right, bone and ink, um, depending on... But, yes, um, some of the some ancient or, like, the Iceman, the, the, oh, yeah. the corpse, the tattoos, um, but they were thought to be therapeutic. Um, but and I found that at, with again in ancient Egypt, um, more women had them, um, so supposedly system with childbirth and all that. But fast forward to Southeast Ohio, the Ohio Valley, West Virginia. Here we are right now, the four five seven SEO, and um, so we're talking to Chris Riddle about his tattoos, as he just said, run the range of taste. Um, <laughs> so let's start there. Where's the what? What? Which one? What do, what do you want to talk about? All right, well, I see one. You so? Oh, what do you see? Looks like <laughs> a little star. <laughs> looks, looks like a spur. Oh, there no, there's mm-hmm. a whole Tweety word. Whole What's word? it say? Uh, edamame. <laughs> edamame. No. <laughs> uh, omnis iodem uh, cogamer. So yeah. for radio listeners, that's on his arm. His forearm. His inner forearm. It's in cursive. It has um, two his compass right roses. Arm. No compass. One on each side. Okay. Um, bicep. I got this the day before my wedding. Oh, and nice. my best friend, who was my best lady man, got the same one on her back. But it means all roads lead to the same end. It's a quote from Horace. Nice. I thought that was rather fitting okay. for a wedding. For a wedding <laughs> the day before. <laughs> Which was on the 4th of July. So Independence Day and all roads lead to the same end. Hmm. Yeah. Deep. It is what it is. <laughs> the day before your wedding. Yeah. And and Carrie, your wife doesn't have it, but your best friend, lady yeah. man. Yeah, who wants me to stop calling her that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. I know, She's like, will you days, please stop referring to me as it? That's the lady man. It can mean a lot of things these days. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Mm. But, um, okay. So she had hers first or she got it on the same day? No, uh, we got it on the same day. Was there alcohol involved? Uh, later. Later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'm not one of those get drunk, get tattoos kind of. Because that's person. a weird thing, but people do that. People mm-hmm. do that. It's a bad and you're not idea. supposed to do that. It's against the law, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so you end up with a bad Tasmanian devil tattoo. Yep. Right. With Tasmania spelled with a R. And why that saying? Um, where did you? Where'd y'all come up with that? Yeah. Well, it's something we'd always went back and forth with for a long. I don't even remember where we, where we started with it, but you know, Bronwyn was like, "Let's do it." And so we did it. And so you did yeah. it. Yeah. And that's mm. how we marked it. So. Here we go. Okay. That's tattoo number one. Uh-huh. Tattoo number one. Um, and then I have some Celtic knotwork on the left arm. Okay. Which is just Celtic knotwork. What, you said knotwork? Yeah. Like a Celtic knot. A uh, knot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, that's a nice one. I get that one like 10 years ago. No, longer than that, 15 years ago. Okay. Wait a minute. Are you telling us in order? Of I'm not telling in order. Oh, okay. So the We're historical... We're, just We're actually going backwards. Hmm. So oh. 
Okay. Now I'm confused. So so we should start with some kind of order, right? Or you no, it doesn't matter. You can go backwards. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the, the the saying is is on your on. most recent. Right. And then the Celtic knot work is the one you got. Yeah, I mean, 15 years ago. Okay. Maybe. Okay. And why'd you get that one? Um, I don't know. Scott Irish. And to represent? Yeah. So. For the culture? For the culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then the next one is on my back. And this one. I win bets on this one. Is this my favorite one? I think it's your favorite one. That I've never seen, No one seen, ever believes actually. it. <laughs> I, was, I had a conversation with someone last night. like, I don't really think you have that. I'm like, no, I do. I'll bet you. She's like, I'm not going to bet with you. <laughs> and then she texted me later and said, I went and told somebody I had that tattoo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, you can borrow mine. <laughs> right. Oh. How's that work? But it is a 1970s fat Elvis on a snowboard <laughs> on top of a box of donuts. And he's throwing the horns. Picks or it didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> put $5 on the table, you know, because I work in public radio, so I need to make extra right, money. Right, please give. Susan is pulling out her wallet right now. <laughs> no, she works in public radio. Uh, she doesn't have cash. Well, yeah. We are going to do a pledge. <laughs> do you have change for 20 <laughs> oh, oh, I think I can find $5. Let me go to my change drawer. We could probably come up with a picture. Oh, my good. Wait a minute. So... <laughs> This is, and I've never seen it, so we don't know that it exists. We, no. We're hearing that it right. exists. I'm, I'll, I'll provide so, some proof. Yeah, so say it. People, people have to – we're not going to put a picture up until people, like, give something. Yeah. <laughs> something. <laughs> I mean – Yeah, it's true. You know, you have to, Fat Elvis. It's Fat Elvis. He's got the jumpsuit. Uh-huh. He's got the rhinestones and the big rings. Naturally. Oh, my – on a snowboard. On a snowboard, nose bonking, a box of donuts. Where is this on your back? It's on my my shoulder. You know, top-notch journalists, we're missing the first big thing. (laughs) Why? (laughs) I used to snowboard a lot, so we'd go down to, like, southern West Virginia and ride a lot when I was a teenager, Mm -hmm. like back in the 90s and early 2000s. Okay. And so, I don't know, it was something I really loved doing. And I ended up at a friend of mine's place. He's got a trailer outside of Marietta on Route 550. And so Al did it in his trailer. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, it was so professional. Snow- professional. That explains the it snowboard. It was just in a trailer up some holler on 550. That explains the snowboard, but... <laughs> what um, Susan said. Elvis died in the 70s, so yeah, I do have gone back a ways to think of that one. I like to take care of business. Ah, <laughs> all right. That doesn't explain the donuts. Well, do you Elvis need to explain donuts? Because Elvis kind of explains the donuts. Yeah. I, was he big on donuts? Yeah. He's big on a lot of things. Don't write it. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. With love. And I'm no disrespect. I'm partially named after Elvis, so Uh-oh. I can really? take all the shots I want. Yeah. Oh, wait, because his middle name was Aaron? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Huh. And it's because of Elvis? Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's why... Aaron is sitting here with his arms folded, like you say, say something bad, say something bad, <laughs> <laughs> say, say it. No, no, that's why Aaron has an Elvis tattoo himself. No, all right. Do Not you? yet. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, his face right there. His face right there was like, uh, no. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so that that's three. That's three. Is that it? No, there are two on my legs. Oh, my gosh. We should have saved the Elvis one for last. <laughs> but, okay. The two on your legs? Okay, so here's what you do when you have kids. This is what <laughs> I've learned. Like, if you have kids that are bored, don't leave India ink and sewing needles around the house. Oh. They gave you a tattoo? 
I, I mean, my, your son I gave, gave you? No, I gave myself a tattoo when I was 16. Oh, I was about to say, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. The baby gave you a tattoo? What is going on? So Harper one day, I was asleep, and he just started like... <laughs> right! I'm marking me up. With sorry. This. That's why listening's wow. important, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> wait for it. Wow. Wait for it. Okay, so you were sitting at home with India ink and a needle. Yeah. And you thought, hey, they do this in prison. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So, I, so what are those... I've got I've got one that makes absolutely no sense. Sure. It's just a bunch of shapes. Because Elvis on a snowboard with donuts <laughs> That's makes right, yeah. all the sense. <laughs> you go for the jailhouse tattoos. It's all good after that. Right, <laughs> it's all quality. Right, right. So one is just a bunch of shapes, and then the second one is a uh, mushroom. I did. Sure. Which looks like a mushroom. It's okay. not bad for a homemade tattoo. But why a mushroom? Because you could make one. Because I can make one. You know. <laughs> right. Maybe shrooms were involved. Maybe. Maybe I don't know. But. No. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I don't think. I don't know. Well, if you're 16, we're going to say it was. Yeah, it was 16. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 16 is 16. Mm. 16 is 16. Yeah. So three of your tattoos have meaning. Yeah. And two of them. I would. First but those two have two. meaning, too, because they, they, they were have the meaning, And I won't. I've thought about, like, having them removed. But, I mean, they do mark a, a time in my life. So. But when I, you got them, you weren't doing them I to think, mark something? Or you yeah, maybe the mushroom. The other one, maybe not so much. You're just practicing. Yeah. You got to practice on yourself. Like a lot of my friends were giving themselves black flag tattoos with the four oh, rectangles, dear. but oh. I went for a mushroom. Hmm. Because do tattoos have to have meaning for you to get them? No. Like, I mean, nothing for, has to have to do anything. What for him personally or for anyone? For anyone. I'm just, yeah, for yeah. me, I would I, want it to have some sort of meaning for me to get it. But <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. Nothing has meaning. We're all dust that will slowly <laughs> fade from this existence. Well, we have entered existential hour with Aaron. That's Elvis a, Aaron. a lyric. No. Not a lyric. It should be a lyric. It should be. This guy in Florida gives tattoos. And he, he says, one day somebody came in and asked him for a Tasmanian devil tattoo. And this guy had been doing Tasmanian devil tattoos, like, nonstop. So he just, you know, looks at the guy straight in the eye and says, I'm sorry, we're all out, but we're supposed to get some next week. <laughs> and the potential client was like, okay, I'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so do they mean anything? No, yeah, they don't yeah, have to. Right? <laughs> For me, I, I, would, I would think they, I would want it to mean something. That's why oh, I haven't right. gotten one. My, yeah. I have one that means something. Yeah. You see me mine. too. But it, I talked to a tattoo artist on a plane one time. He's like, they don't have to have meaning. Just go get one. Right. You just mark your body permanently. Um, He didn't have a stake in that at all. Right. Because a part of that is deciding, and I don't know if you had this, because your Elvis one, I'm not saying that means the most to you, but it might be that, (laughs) you know, you had your friend do it. In a trailer. Working. But working with somebody you were comfortable with is important. Oh, right. When I went to the, when I, before I got my tattoo, and I went to someone first, and I didn't like it. I didn't like his vibe. I didn't like his attitude. And we had designed it. Um, a friend of mine and I designed it. And well, my friend, ex-husband, <laughs> <laughs> he's a friend. Uh, we designed it, and we got a bad vibe from him. We were like, yeah, no thank you, because mm-hmm. that's, you know, we don't that's want important. that. We don't mm-hmm. want that energy. But Susan, you have a tattoo. Yeah, right? it took me four years to decide to finally get the tattoo. Mm-hmm. You have so. a tattoo. I do. Mm, bop. Yeah, somebody's gonna kill me for this. Uh, I have a Hanson symbol, so I can't really judge Elvis, but a Hanson symbol with <laughs> lyrics around it. 
What is a Hanson symbol? It's like an H and it's circular. It's and, like, yeah, yeah. Like, like how your Celtic knot looks. It uh-huh. kind of looks oh, sort of like it. that yeah, with Hanson, Hanson written Hanson, uh, that way. Where is it? It's right here. Oh, no. That uh, hurt. Is where she's pointing. My mom's rip. not going to listen to this podcast, so it's covered so that my mother doesn't know about it. <laughs> I got it my senior year of college. On her me. back. She's pointing to no. her back. On her side. Oh, side. That's like tender to tender yeah, meat. It was tender. Yes, oh, yeah. it was. Especially down Eesh. by the rib cage. Is that oh, a yeah. shank? No, that's not the shank. Not a shank. shank. <laughs> <laughs> I did not get a shank on myself. No. Was it the flank? What is that part of the... Is that the flank? I think it's the flank. The flank? I thought the flank was back here. Oh. I don't know. I just buy the meat. I it's the armpit. Work. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the part... that That's the tender spot. It's tender because it's not... It's right... But it's, and it's not exposed to... Yeah. And it's right above the rib cage, so they started to sort of dig down into the rib cage. And I was like, ow, ow, ow. All for Hanson. And and you got it there so that no one would see it? Yeah, it was for me. Well, my mother would have killed me if I... She had seen it, but it was mostly for me otherwise. (laughs) Because they're a personal thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's red because the music is part of my blood. We can edit that part out. No, I think we gotta keep that. that. Yeah. He's making edits right now in his head. Yeah. Do you I've have got, a tattoo, Aaron? No. Oh. I don't. I had my lip pierced for a while. Wait, what? <laughs> you can still see the hole, yeah. No kidding. Wow. wow. <laughs> I thought he just took it out for work. I didn't know you stopped oh, wearing no, it. I, oh, no. I stopped wearing it uh, when I got into journalism. Hmm. So you had your lip pierced when you were in the ska band? That's where I thought the lyric came from was the ska band. <laughs> No, it was a Christian Nothing ska band. A Christian uh, ska yeah, band. Yeah, that's kind of like Hanson. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm lost. <laughs> no, I have a similar situation to Susan with uh, mothers and tattoos. Mm. My middle brother got a tattoo for his friend that unfortunately died. Um, and he got a Bible verse, and it was basically be fishers of men because he and his buddy would go fishing and that's how they spent most of their friendship and then he died so he got that tattooed and my mom saw it and told him and I quote God will punish you for getting a tattoo oh God's into tattoos (laughs) or not into tattoos that's the least of my problems (laughs) I got my tattoo a couple of months before my um, before I got married and we got the same tattoo. Um, and I didn't tell anyone, because right, even though I was almost a full-grown adult, I mean, I was 28, so <laughs> right. it's not quite full-grown if you're still scared of your parents, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but a couple of months before we got married and didn't tell anyone, didn't show anyone until the wedding day. And my mom's in my room, and she's helping me get dressed, and I was like, I got a tattoo! And <laughs> 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 she was like, is it real? And I was like, yeah. She was like, oh. So I think they were, you know, they're all like drunk off of the idea that your daughter's getting married. And then when I saw my dad in the, in the, um, I was like, when did I tell him? I think we were in the, in the limo actually going to the, to the, to the church. And, um, uh, and he was sitting on the opposite side of me, like as we were walking, coming out of, because we had a kind of destination wedding. So we were walking out of the hotel and I kept, Making sure I was on the on the other side of him, mm-hmm, so he mm-hmm. didn't see my arm. Yep. And then um, sitting in the in the limo, and just before he's about to get, we were about to get out to walk me down the aisle. I was like, 
oh yeah, and I got a tattoo. <laughs> 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 Is it that one? <laughs> yeah. So you had it uh, when your sons were born. You had it redone. Yes, I had oh. uh, added on. So yeah, and then my dad the same thing. Was it real? So at the wedding, and, my, and there's a picture of my, my grandmother's kind of holding my arm, like what? the hell <laughs> but the is it real was everything is it real yeah is it real was the answer so but personal because we we designed them and i had it i had it recolored in a little bit and had some other stuff done um after so maybe after 15 or so years um and then it had uh our son's names added to them on the inside of the arm so it's a band and then on the inside, it have the, the boys' oh, names. Nice. And so people are like, wow, why'd you get it so other people can read it? Again, it's not for you. Mm-hmm. It's for me. Right. And I have it on the inside because they have them under my wing. So. Oh. Yep. oh. But, yeah. Is that a sensitive spot, though, right there? Yes. <laughs> yeah, because I'm just thinking yeah. about that. And I'm so like, Ooh. Yeah, because yeah. I've thought about getting a tattoo here. And I'm, I'm like, I don't know. The I've got a great picture of getting this one done mm-hmm. where I'm, like, grabbing onto my rib cage. And <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, when we got ours done, so that would have to have been in 96, 97. And um, the, uh, I said, oh, I should probably go first because we took time to design it and figure out blah, blah, blah. And we had, a, we had actual wedding rings made with the same design. We lost those. <laughs> <laughs> foreshadowing. Um, so <laughs> that children is called foreshadowing. But... Um, uh, I said, you know, I should probably go first because if I see you wince and in too much pain, mm-hmm. I won't do it, and it'll defeat the whole purposes of us having having matching tattoos. Yeah, I had we had names on them, our names, which is kind of dumb. You know, you think of the things you shouldn't shouldn't do, and they say never get someone else's name on your arm because you know. And I was like, no, we're gonna be forever. <laughs> well. Um, <laughs> And I had my own name on it, so we had our names on it. But it, I had those. I had our names removed, lasered off. That hurt worse th- more than that tattoo. No. Just the names lasered off. I went and I was like, I don't need anyone to come with me. And my friend, now my partner, was like, You want me to come and I can hold your hand? Because she got tattoos before. Mm. I was like, No, nah, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna need. She was like, Well, I'm gonna come anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, she, and he started doing that. I was like, give me your hand, give me your hand. <laughs> yeah. I was doing the same thing. I would try on clothes and my mom would want to look at them. And I'm like turning this way <laughs> so oh, that yeah. she can't see. <laughs> We're all big and bad until mom walks no, into yeah. the room. Until right. the day I die, I will be scared of my mother. <laughs> As it should be. <laughs> well, my, when my son, my oldest, turned 18, he was very excited and he, you know, this whole idea of tattoos being a form of independence, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, thinking of what can you do when you're 18 that you don't quite need your parents. Legally, you don't need mm-hmm. your parents' approval. So he walked into the room. He said, I'm 18. I I can do it now. I'm going to get a tattoo. I was like, no, first, actually, he asked, can I get a tattoo? <laughs> I was like, can you get a tattoo? What? A tattoo of what? He's like, well, I'm 18. I can get a tattoo. So I, I don't know, like a, like a. I don't know, like a, a ship's a steering wheel. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? With Elvis steering. Right, and right. <laughs> I was like, you've never even been on a boat. What are you talking about? <laughs> he was like, if, and he didn't even know the name because he was like a ship's, you know, a wheel or, or something. <laughs> and then, oh, you know, for a lot. So here, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
if what? you're asking, no. Right. So then later on, he said he wanted to um, get the same tattoo that we have, but get our name oh. on him. So I thought, okay, that was neat. I was like, but, you know, just wait. Just see. You might want something that, you know, means a little bit more to you. And um, and think about skin tone and all of that and, you know, whether it really show up and whether that makes something to you. My brother had a tattoo. He's funny, 18-ish, and it's it's a clown clawing its way out of his chest. Oh. So that's timely now, right? So it's oh, like, oh no, no, right, right. It's it's the craziest thing. So his, so it looks like you know, it's like a rip in his chest. It looks like it, and then you can kind of see like a clown oh, coming dear. through. But it, and his buddy got one too, like the similar, different clouds. Right? I was like, what? Are they juggalos? <laughs> <laughs> are gigolos? No, juggalos 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 totally, oh no totally yeah no they just it's like a plot of a horror movie <laughs> goofy <laughs> right goofy 18 year olds and um something to do whatever sure alcohol was involved and so but so they got the outline um and one friend he went back to because they did, had to go back for color on the next day. My brother's like, "Nah, man, that shit hurt." <laughs> I'm not doing it. So he's kind of got a half. You can see it, but it's not you know as vibrant as when you see his friends. And that was again years ago. But just like, yeah, the things we don't <laughs> think through. You know, uh-huh. things That's we, right. Yeah. The things we think through. So in Southeast Ohio, I was trying to get a count of how many tattoo parlors there are, and there are about four in Athens. Um, I think it's one in in Malta. That's not really southeast Ohio, and a lot in Chillicothe. Mm-hmm. I didn't see if there are any in Gallipolis. If you guys show, send us pictures of your tattoos and uh, oh, yeah. your favorite tattoo parlor and your tattoo artist, because it is a this is an intimate affair, or it should be. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're a college town, so yeah, there's mm-hmm. gonna be a lot of cat- tattoos and stuff. And maybe we'll send pictures of ours. <laughs> We've learned so much about yeah. each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very so, right. intimate show. Yes, right. Tattoos <laughs> tell you about each other, yeah. right? And what what's important to you, and just how you view life, you can kind of see that from from yeah. people's art, mm-hmm. and whether you're going to thumb your nose at God's punishment or not. <laughs> <laughs> <Aaron>. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chris it and is. Fat Elvis. It's always Thanks, a Fat Elvis. Thank you very much. Our thanks again to Chris Riddle and his mind-boggling tattoos. <laughs> also, thanks to Joe Gay for speaking with us. 457 SEO is produced by the WOUB News Team and recorded in the Telemix Studios. Our original music is produced by Nathan McGuire. Thanks, Nathan. Our producer is Adam Rich. Our editor-in-chief is Allison Hunter. And Aaron Payne is our editor. You can find 457 SEO on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, NPR One, WOUB.org slash listen, or you can just search WOUB.org for 457SEO. Remember to leave us a five-star review as it helps other people find the podcast. And yes, please leave us a comment while you're at it. As long as it's constructive, don't be mean. And let us know what you want to hear on future podcasts. 
So thanks again for listening. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Susan Tebbin. I'm Atish Baidya. And I'm Aaron Payne. Thanks. Bye. Backslash. <laughs> <laughs> hey,